Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor L. My pronouns are she or they. In this episode, we'll discuss Baptism of Jesus, also known as the First Sunday After Epiphany, which this year falls on January 8th. Also, we've got a live Q&A coming up this month, so now is a great time to become a $10 or above supporter on Patreon. Or if you aren't and you submit questions to us, you will be entered to win a free spot in the live Q&A. So you get one entry per question. So there are lots of possibilities there for you. (laughs) We do have a content notification for this episode. We talk about anti-queer sentiment, conversion therapy, and suicide in part of our discussion during the deep dive. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Today, for our deep dive, we are super excited to welcome back to the podcast, now Reverend Elle Dowd. Last time she was the soon-to-be reverend, and now they are the reverend. She is the author of Baptized in Tear Gas, an activist, a PhD student, and they are also an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, serving college students and young adults in downtown Chicago. Welcome, Elle. Yay, thanks for having me back. Also, I forgot to mention at the beginning of that introduction that our deep dive for today is a deep dive into the Holy Spirit, which she's my favorite of the Trinity. (laughs) I don't know about anybody else, but I'm surprised we haven't yet done it. And I am super excited that you are with us to dive into the Holy Spirit. Yes, me too. Absolutely. So no pressure on the most newly ordained person on this podcast, Elle, but (laughs) who is the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So I think something like also super interesting about like we're like Lutherans here, right? When I was going through, speaking of being like pretty recently ordained, when I was going through candidacy, which for folks who don't know, that's the process in addition to seminary you have to go through for them to sort of like approve for you to get ordained to be a pastor. When I was going through candidacy, like in a lot of my essays and things that I wrote, I would talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. And some people like on my committee were like kind of like suspicious of that. Like they were kind of like, why do you always talk about the Holy Spirit? So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, you know, I think Lutherans a lot can be like super Christocentric just because of theology and of our other stuff. But like, the Trinity is a thing on purpose. And so I'm really excited that we get to talk about the Holy Spirit because a lot of times that's like something that's left out. But I do feel like maybe some more progressive people tend to like gravitate towards the Holy Spirit. So I guess I would say, you know, if I were like define the Holy Spirit, that's, yeah, you're right. That is like a really big question, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, there's like, it's hard to talk about the Holy Spirit sort of like separate from the rest of the Trinity. But if we Mm -hmm sort of like understand that God is in three persons, like the Holy Spirit is God in and among us and the movement of God in the world and inside of us. So like a a transformative, creative force in the world. Sure. God showing up in that way. I don't know. What do you, how would you all answer that question? I like that too. And if it helps, I personally got the, are you sure you talk about Jesus enough? Maybe you could talk about Jesus more comments when I I was going through candidacy. But I was trying to give the Trinity equal time. Heaven forbid we play fair. Anyway, so. (laughs) 
Yeah. I thought we weren't supposed to have favorites. Yeah. yeah. I think I got that I didn't talk about God enough. So between the three of hmm. us. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Which is like, I talk about Jesus a lot. Like, like in almost like an evangelical, like Jesus is my boyfriend way. So I'm just, it was, I, it can't be like, they were mad. I wasn't talking about Jesus enough. Like, I don't know. I think there was, there's some level of suspicion. Like maybe, I don't know. I don't know about yeah. like, yeah, the Holy Spirit. Why are you talking about her so much? Like trying to I think at that. the time I was just so literally all we were talking about in class was Jesus. And yeah. I was kind of mm-hmm. done and I wanted to talk about God and the Holy <laughs> Spirit for a change. And wow. But yeah, I, yeah. I like the Holy think... Spirit as the active hand of God in the world. And I, I like the Holy Spirit as the, the guide in the world for us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I have talked about the Holy Spirit's celestial flip-flop and or clue by four that we get batted over the head with occasionally to right. be told what I to. have talked about two by fours to the head, two by four to yeah. the head moments with the Holy Spirit before. Yes. Well, that's the thing too, that I guess I'm like talking about to me and talking about the Holy Spirit a lot in the midst of like a big discernment process, such as candidacy makes sense because yeah. so much, you know, so that's, that's so much of does. like experience the holy spirit so if you're like in the midst of it like of course you're going to have the holy spirit on your mind i think yeah i think there's also a sense and we get this from like pentecostal churches that have a much stronger emphasis on the holy spirit in ways that lutherans do and do not but i think there's also this sense of like disrupting the status quo and empowering those who have been disempowered by the more institutional church right like the holy spirit calls people like empowers people for ministry in the world and so she is like a particularly dangerous thing when it comes to a church institution that has like power structures and hierarchy and injustice in it and so then there's like oh no are you going to just like flip everything on the end and like you know that's not always a bad thing and might have been what they were getting at. And right. Yeah. And disruption is what the Holy spirit does. I mean, see the story of Pentecost. That's, that's what she's about. And the number of people I've met who mm-hmm. are so sold on the concept of reverence means everything has to be predictable and planned. And I have gotten scolded for trying to bring the Holy Spirit into a worship service here and there, not in, you know, enormous ways, just small ones, or, you know, gently suggesting the concept of Holy Humor Sunday the week after Easter and or the idea of having a sense of humor in a worship service at all. And it's just sad. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's definitely like, especially because, you know, in the global South, Pentecostalism and understanding of the Holy Spirit is like so such a part of people's spirituality. And mm-hmm. then this like weird stoicism is like in many ways, like part of white supremacy culture, right? Like the way yep. uh, thinking that the way that white people understand like emotions or reverence or holiness is like the highest, best, correct one, because it's maybe like something we think of as more like intellectual ascent or something as opposed to like emotive and embodied is like, wow, first of all, it's white supremacy, but also like experiencing the Holy Spirit in a way that's like emotive and embodied is also very queer and very feminist and very all kinds of things that are very dangerous to institutions and the status quo. So that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of 
all of these things that are challenging to the status quo. Ooh. Pronouns, huh? Yeah. What I feel pronouns? like we've all been using she. Like I kind of was like because I knew this we would talk about <laughs> this. I was kind of like, I feel like do we all use she? I tend to use she by default. Mm-hmm. depending on the context I yeah. sometimes will use neo pronouns oh, so yeah. like I've used fey fair fain and some other ones too that seems maybe most right to me although I I don't I think I'm maybe at like St. Luke's which is a pretty queer church I've like used neo pronouns for persons of the trinity before but I think usually I use she I tend to use like they them or god for like creator god like Mm -hmm. use he for jesus sometimes i'll use they for like the eternal christ right but usually for the holy spirit it's she for me sure yeah i've always worked in very conservative contexts and so i find that after i explain the concept generally no one minds if i use she for the holy spirit in regular conversation but if i am reading from the bible heaven forbid i try to change a pronoun <laughs> so reading from the bible i don't yeah. automatically change anything but in anything else i'm i'm usually free to do as necessary and What that usually looks like is that half the time I will just not use pronouns at all and half the time I will use she. So Yeah. Yeah, I use neo-pronouns for me are in explicitly queer spaces. So like um, on queering.org and then in like leading worship at a proclaim gathering or something where like we're intentionally rooting ourselves in queerness. But yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I guess like, I think part of the reason why for me is like, there is like, you know, sort of like the aspect of feminine or for in queer spaces, like also even like particularly like femme things about the Holy Spirit and, and stuff. But some of it also to me is like a corrective, right? Like I think mm-hmm. there's like, Amen. you can make the like, yes, <laughs> we can make like the theological like connection and argument about why like she or neo pronouns would be like correct and faithful. But I think also it's like, part of it for me is a corrective of like, there's so many Mm -hmm. other opportunities in liturgy and scripture, other places where it's a lot of he, him and only he, him. And so Mm -hmm. in some ways it's just like to round things out a little bit, you know? Yeah. 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 I know in seminary we read she who is. Oh, sure. And that talked a a little bit, got into pronoun use for God. And part of it was like, because of the way patriarchy works and because of the last 2000 plus years of referring to God as he or him, when we refer to God without pronouns, the imagery is still Still masculine. masculine. And so then it does like, you have to swing the pendulum the other direction. You can't just like, I mean, we get this with like certain centrist presidents that we have had who like Mm -hmm. start from where they want to end up. And you're like, no, you have to start from like way further to the left in order to like yeah. swing back to this yeah. central thing yeah. that you want. Yeah. Yeah. And the right knows that, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. yeah. We are pulling as hard as we can on the pendulum, but also there's 2000 years of dead white guys on the other side. So yeah, <laughs> it's going to take a little while. Yes. Well, yeah. and I think too, like, that's really true. Like the sort of idea, if there's no pronouns, then people sort of like copy and paste like mentally masculine or even like here he him in their head if it's even if it's not there if there's just no pronouns Mm -hmm. but I think that's also like that's really true of the church because of the pervasive you know masculine images of God over the past 2,000 years but it's true in general in our culture that like 
quote unquote gender neutral clothes, right? Like you're not putting typically like pink and bows on stuff you call gender neutral. Although like clothes don't have a gender, so they're all neutral, (laughs) you know, but like, so like there's this sort of like centering and norming of maleness and masculinity that sort of just we've been indoctrinated into. Yeah. And that's, I have shifted more to add clarity, but to to talk about like gender inclusive as being the removal of gender kind of things, right? Like the no pronouns for God and only using God and that sort of a thing. And I think that's also feels accurate to what you're talking about with clothing. But what we're actually called to is gender expansiveness, right? Where we can expand our use of pronouns to use more pronouns for God, where we can expand our understanding of clothing to use all the clothing for Mm -hmm. kids and adults. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because that's the way that like, you know, especially gender is like this, but also, you know, like for the divine, right? It's like the divine is like so like difficult to describe or define like on sort of mm-hmm. by design like the de- the divine is this thing that's like mysterious and beyond and there's ways that the divine is like known to us and very intimate but there's just like so much going on basically with like who god is that all of the images and all of the metaphors that we use are both reveal something about god and are also limiting. And so the best yeah. way, instead of trying to find like some perfect language that will encompass everything doesn't exist, the best way is for us to sort of like hit at what this inexplicable thing is with a variety of images and a variety of metaphors and a variety of language or, and a variety of pronouns, because each one of these reveals something about God and enriches us. And mm-hmm. each one of these also has limitations. And so what we've been doing historically is focusing just on God the Father, just on he, him, very like narrowly, which isn't necessarily like bad or wrong. It reveals some things about God for us, but it obscures tons of things. Mm-hmm. And more than that, there's like all these other images that are different that we miss out on when we just like focus exclusively on on like sort of one image. So yeah, yeah. and it, especially within the context of like a patriarchal culture, mm-hmm. it also like that's that's part of what Elizabeth Johnson I think says in She Who Is that when God is he, he becomes God, right? So it's not just like how we're understanding God, but then when it's exclusively he for God, it also means that men in particular, cis white men become God. They become unchallengeable. They, the power that they have is reinforced in a divine sense, which is Mm -hmm. even more dangerous than like a regular sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think like, there's this thing that we do when we use different pronouns for the, for example, for the Holy Spirit, besides, you know, he, him, it, when we're doing that, we're sort of embodying the disruptive nature of the Holy Spirit. Like we're like (laughs) doing a Holy Spirit thing by being like, ah, you're used to this one way of thinking. Let's turn Mm -hmm. it upside down. Let's pick it up. Let's break it open. Right. So when we hear, even for me, like who never uses he, him for the Holy Spirit. If I'm in a church and I notice other pronouns other than he, him, like for the Holy Spirit or for any, you know, any stuff, any parts of the Trinity or, or any other sort of like gendered language, because I'm still normally surrounded, you know, by patriarchy and all kinds of oppressive language, like it still is disruptive to me. Like I pay attention, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, does, it cuts through some of that 
stuff. So it's a way to like embody, like the Holy Spirit comes in, messes things up. It's a little like all over the place. It turns you upside down. It catches you by surprise. So yeah. like using those other like images or, or pronouns are a way of like doing the thing that the Holy Spirit does. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of images and metaphors for God, what are some of your favorite images for the Holy Spirit? In the Bible, we get the images of fire and wind and a dove, and I'm sure you have some you'd like to. Yeah. So on the cover of my ordination bulletin, Nick Pinaranda, who is also the artist of God's Holy Darkness, which is a children's Yay. book that everyone should buy. Yeah. Who was on our podcast for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost this year and talked about God's Holy Darkness right before it came out. Oh my gosh. Yes. So Pastor yeah. Nick, Chef's Kiss, 10 out of 10, like huge fan, good friend. Love her so Great much. Mm -hmm. um, She's wonderful. Amazing artist. So she designed, oh, yeah. we commissioned her to design the art for the cover of our bulletin. So we were mm -hmm. focusing on the Magnificat. And so she like knew that that was the prompt, right? So she drew like Mary and Elizabeth with like Mary has a raised fist and the, you know, red handprint over her mouth of the symbol of missing and murdered indigenous women. And Elizabeth had a mobility device, kind of like a cane or something, and also a gas mask. And then behind mm -hmm. them, so they look like protesters, right? Like they're embodying yeah. and looking like protesters. And then be behind them is the Minneapolis Police Department on fire. And the flames form a dove. So the idea is like, wow, you know, it kind of plays with both of those images, but like, especially with Magnificat being like casting down the mighty, turning the world upside down, the Holy Spirit, like in that imagery is fire, but a very specific fire mm -hmm. because that those images in the uprising of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, like the imagery of oh my gosh, the police stations are on fire is like a very yeah. like specific disruptive image. So that's my particular, like, I guess a particular art piece <laughs> that I'm referencing, <laughs> original art piece. But I think about that a lot too, even with my own experiences in Ferguson and how the news media didn't pay attention mm -hmm. until the quick trip was burned down. And at the time, again, because I was so indoctrinated into white niceness and civility, I was like horrified that the, you know, I agreed that Michael Brown shouldn't have been killed. That was bad, but I was horrified that the quick trip was burned down. And I just thought that was just so terrible. And now looking back, I really see that moment and many other moments of maybe controversial property destruction as mm -hmm. Holy Spirit moments interrupting like, and purifying and all that stuff. Like perhaps the flipping of tables in a religious space that, that <laughs> might be property destruction. Yes, sure. yes, right. Yeah. So you, it seems like you're kind of getting at this and I imagine your experience in Ferguson was one of these, but have you had any Holy Spirit moments in your life? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think there's definitely like, and, and we can talk more about Ferguson and some of, of those, but I think also we talked also a little bit about sort of like call story and process, how mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit is so involved with discernment. And there's also just a lot of moments in my life where I had no idea why I was being drawn to a specific place or person or conversation or role mm -hmm. or whatever. And then looking back, it's like really clear that like I was being drawn there for a reason or God was sort of like ordering my steps in that way. And, and I think the Holy Spirit 
is like involved in this stuff that appeared, I guess one way to think of it is stuff that appeared to be chaos, right? Like, like getting moved all over the place. When Adam was in the military, now he's in Veterans for Peace. So he works against imperialism and, and militarism, but we were, you know, moved all over the place. And each one of these places felt so random and in the middle of nowhere. And if I hadn't been moved to the middle of nowhere, California, I would not have met my congregation that was Episcopal Lutheran. And if I had not been, you know, been moved to Missouri with that experience as an Episcopal Lutheran type person, I would not have applied for the job at the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. right? And and I would not have been present in Ferguson. So there's moments like that. And there's also moments that like when they're like a lot of, so a lot of times it's like, it feels like chaos. Things are like all over the place, but then looking back, it's like, whoa, this is like almost, sometimes you can't always tell, but sometimes it's like, whoa, this is a clear line preparing me, bringing me to these mm-hmm. places, being the right people, forming me in this way. A lot of times, like, I don't even know when it's happening, but there are times that I'm like, oh, if I'm like paying attention enough, I'm like, oh, this is a thing. So the month before white police officer Darren Wilson shot and killed unarmed black teenager Michael Brown in Ferguson, the month before working for the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri, I had brought Episcopal youth to their national youth gathering. And we had gone Mm -hmm. to the Episcopal Church of the Advocate, which historically has been on the forefront of justice in Philadelphia. They are this beautiful neo-Gothic church, but then inside they have all of these murals that trace sort of like liberation history through scripture and then through the abolition of slavery and through the civil rights movement and the black power movement. And they're really intense, really beautiful, modern sort of murals. So like there's all of this neo-Gothic architecture that's like very, you know, quote unquote traditional. And then there's these like super rad art pieces that are about liberation. And that's also the church for for those of you who know more about the Episcopal Church, that's been where the first women were ordained in the Episcopal Church too, irregularly yep. against mm. the rules. Yes. So the month before Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, I was in this space and I was like feeling this feeling. And I, I called my partner, Adam, afterwards and I'm like, something really big just happened to me today. Like I saw mm-hmm. this space, there was all this energy, stuff's happening inside me, stuff's like sort of buzz. It feels like my skin's buzzing and inside there's all this stuff going on. Like you could feel the energy in that space. I can feel the energy in me. Something is happening, but I, I don't know what it is, you know? And something that is really poignant about that, those liberation murals is that they're very angry actually. And very, yeah. some people might have, might use words like violent, right? Or destructive. Mm-hmm. And so there was this thing happening in me that I was like, had this spiritual experience and I wasn't really sure like what it was pointing to, but at least that time it wasn't like, Oh, looking back, I can see that this was forming me in the moment. Right. Like feeling like, Oh, this is like getting me ready for something. This is like, this is, this is coming. It was almost a month to the day before Michael Brown was killed. So yeah, the, obviously the Ferguson uprising was a huge Holy spirit moment in my life. Sometimes people ask me like, how I got involved. And, you know, there's the obvious answer that I worked for the bishop's office. There was a church, an Episcopal church in Ferguson. And so, you know, I sort of collegially wanted to check on people and Mm -hmm. also was the youth missioner. So Michael Brown went to school with some people who are sort of like under my care, went to high school. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But as far as like, why did I show up like on West Florissant, right? Why did I show up like on, you know, initially? And it really was this feeling that felt almost like this like magnet or white hot light, just like 
drawing me there. Like I was supposed to be there. So that feels like a Holy spirit moment. And, you know, Michael Brown should not have had to die for the uprising to take place for change to happen for me to experience transformation. (laughs) But in the midst of this like horrible white supremacist violence, people responded. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. there was this flashpoint moment. And we've seen that in other cases too, right? With Freddie Gray, with George Floyd. George Floyd. Yes. Yeah. So many. Again and again and again. The list is so long. And yet, the list is so long. And yet, there's other people who were killed sort of similarly. And Mm -hmm. the response wasn't always there. And some of that is, you know, there's a lot of sort of sociological reasons for that. But I think that some of the reasons that some of these uprisings took off the way they did was that people were feeling the movement of the Holy Spirit. In Ferguson, it was, and I know this is true for George Floyd too, there was thousands of first-time activists who had not been involved in any other organizations or really much to do with like liberation work or anything Mm -hmm. like that, who just felt compelled and were just pouring out their front doors and just had, you know, they're like, we're angry, we're upset, this should be different. And I think I definitely felt the Holy Spirit present in that. Yeah, Yeah. I think- Particularly after George Floyd was killed, part of why there started to be this really clear push to get back to normal, to get back to business, to get the economy back to going was because there was movement, right? There was activism. It was actually making changes. Mm -hmm. And that was scary for the people with power. And so they were like, oh, shit, what do we do now? We have to like, we have to stop the holy spirit basically and and they didn't completely but there's a lot of progress that did get stopped when people had to go back to work and it was more stressful and everybody's still at risk of covid and like the risk is even worse because the government is denying responsibilities and all of that stuff inflation right empires Mm -hmm. empires gain power and maintain power by making us too hungry, too poor, and too afraid to fight back. So inflation where we can't afford our groceries and yeah. being constantly sick because, you know, they're not doing taking the proper precautions and leadership to like protect us makes us a much more docile society, right? So mm-hmm. absolutely. I think yeah. you're right, Emily. Yeah. Also, I always like to point this out because I didn't always notice this, but I think it was this year or last year when we were doing Pentecost, the wind that is talked Mm -hmm. about for the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is violent. Yeah. I did a statement on that. Yeah. It's the noise as of a violent wind. And so Mm -hmm. when you were talking about like, these images are angry and they're violent. And I was like, yes, because that is what she does. Yes. Yes. When I preached my first Pentecost sermon, the first Pentecost sermon I ever preached was at Christ Church Cathedral, which is an Episcopal church in St. Louis. And mm-hmm. that's what I focused on was, you know, a violent wind. And that was the May after Michael Brown had been killed. So it was like very much pointing directly and explicitly to that same idea of the Holy Spirit as disruptive, as leaders of our freedom movements, not being who or what we'd expect. And the yeah. Holy Spirit was working through those people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to point out that sometimes when the Holy Spirit shows up, she is exciting and energizing and that can be wonderful and sometimes she is you know smacking you over the head with something that you probably already knew but weren't willing to admit yet (laughs) and also sometimes she is just blastedly inconvenient like 
my life could be so much easier <laughs> on so many different levels okay. if she had just left me alone already. And so yeah. I would also like to open the space of sometimes when the Holy Spirit shows up, it's a life-changing epic moment. And also sometimes it's just a quiet reminder of, you know, maybe you should look that way instead. Maybe you should consider this instead. Maybe you should be thinking about how mm -hmm. that person feels instead, that kind of thing. And it's irritating but also yeah. she keeps being right so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah I think too you know like scripture also talks about the Holy Spirit as like a comfort to us too right so like I think yeah, that's what like, I'm I get, getting to yeah. yeah I get super jazzed up about like the disruptive and the life changing slash life ruining slash upside down all that stuff I get super jazzed about that but I think too you know those moments where you're like in pain or you're suffering and you feel like God around you and holding you like that's the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Sometimes was... it's God's holy darkness. Yes. yes. Indeed. So one of the titles that we give the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, which means the one who makes holy. And so what does it mean for people to be made holy? And are some people more holy than others? And not in the, you know, having holes in your clothing sense. Right, right. I think for those of us who, for whatever reason, have sort of been told that we're not the right kind of person or that, that who we are is inherently offensive to God. So I'm thinking in particular, sure. like only for like women too, also, but I'm thinking also, you know, in particular for like LGBTQI plus people and around like stuff like conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. So like there's, you know, because there's been this history of some of us, like for example, LGBTQIA plus people being told that we're the wrong kind of person who we are is offensive to God, we're not holy, and that there's something in us that needs to be rooted out and changed and sanctified, right? And that mm, thing sure. is like our wicked, wicked queerness that needs to go away. I think because of that history, like a lot of us are like very understandably skeptical or wary of language mm -hmm. like sanctifier. But I think when I hear talking about sanctification, I think also about transformation. And from an abolitionist point of view, part of what I believe as an abolitionist is that no one is beyond transformation and we don't throw anyone away. And so wow. there's accountability for individuals mm -hmm. and communities and that transformation is, is possible. And so I think like I tend to use words like transformation instead of sanctification, but really we're talking about the same sort of thing in which, you know, we are all people who are captive to sin, especially like systemic sin. We are born into systems of sin that even if we try to navigate as best we can, like it's like a laser maze. You can't get through without mm -hmm. bumping something because it's just everywhere. And so the, in a world like that and, and wrapped up in systems like that, having we need a force like the holy spirit who is coming mm -hmm. to transform us and sanctify us from these sort of sins right so if i think about holy spirit sanctifier being like you should stop being bisexual and please be more straight being bisexual is a sin and you're bad and you should be sort of quote-unquote converted i don't mm -hmm. like that right yeah on the same token when i think about like i'm a white person born into a system of white supremacy yeah. and i've internalized despite my best efforts that's stuff I want yeah. out of me, yeah. right? Like I want to be pur purified, sanctified from white supremacy, both the systems around me and the internalized bias within me. So in that way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Burn that, that chaff. Like it makes me more, I think the difference here is 
um, hopefully that that makes me more myself, right? When we talk about people who are like, mm-hmm. oh, you need to be sanctified from your queerness. Yeah. My queerness is who I am and it's a good part of who I am. And without my queerness, it's actually really confusing because it's so wrapped up in my worldview, my politics, my family life, mm-hmm. like my, I don't know, just like how I view the world. Like if that were to be ripped away from me, it'd be like, that's a good part of me. So, you know, if, if my queerness were to be quote unquote sanctified from me, like a lot of the good thing, like it would be taking all these things that are like a part of me. I would be less myself if I wasn't yeah. queer. I want mm-hmm. to think that, you know, white supremacy is actually like not my truest self. And so being sanctified mm-hmm. from white supremacy makes me more able to love God and my neighbor more transformed into a truer, more liberated version of myself. And so I think that's maybe like the key difference is when we talk about sanctification, being made holy, being made holy should make us feel more free, right? And more connected to our neighbors. So yeah, so the sort of things like that transform us that that make us more liberated and more connected and more able to love God and ourselves and our neighbor, like that's the kind of sanctification I think of with the Holy Spirit. Mm, sure. I like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Nice. So one of the things that comes up in the readings that we have for today, which is baptism of Jesus, is the warning to not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And that phrase has been interpreted in a lot of different ways. And so what do you think about that phrase? Yeah, in some of the like activism spaces that I've been in, we have talked about how some people are yes people and some people are no people, right? And Mm -hmm. And we need like both kinds of people in movements and in communities. We need people who can look at something and be like, no, not this. And we need people who can look at something and be like, yes, this, right? And sometimes those people are the same people and sometimes they're different. But I think when I saw this question, when I heard this question, I was like, you know, what's a lot easier for me is to be like, these are the things it does not mean. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, like sometimes people have had the very misguided and harmful idea that this is somehow about suicide or suicidality. And Mm. I think I can say very clearly that is not what it is, right? Like, no, not that. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's also not this thing that we can sort of accidentally slip into. I, I remember reading this. I was like such a Bible nerd growing up. I just like loved reading the Bible and read it you know, cover to cover and just like take notes and was really weird and nerdy about it. But I like was anxious about this, like that I was going to accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's this thing where if you doubt or you say the wrong thing about God, like it's not like some incantation that you, you know, accidentally say because you mix up some words or something. It's not, it's also not that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so I'm not totally sure there's a bunch of other things I think it's not, right? But I'm not totally sure exactly what I think it is. And I've heard different theories and all of them. I'm kind of like, I don't know. But one way that I've thought about this is sort of like eternally denying the goodness and the image of God in God's creation, right? Not sort of like the way that we all make mistakes and not sort of in the way that, you know, all of us are learning to see the image of God in ourselves and our neighbor, but the sort of persistent clinging to that, because I think that God, you know, believes in consent and is not going to like force anyone into some sort of like eternal liberated paradise. Like there are people who are so, or there's a possibility at least of people who are so anti-liberation that they cling to this idea of not seeing the image of God in other people in God's creation 
that they would choose, they'd rather choose not to be a part of a liberated future than to be a part of it. And so I think Mm -hmm. that that's like the closest I can come. That's not very clear or well-developed, right? But like, that's like the closest I can come to like, yes, this, right? Like not these things, not all the sort of messed up things that, that I've heard. Sometimes people posit that this is about, yes, this thing, but it's still, I'm still kind of figuring out. I'd love to hear if you all have ideas on this. Yeah. I mainly asked this question because a few years ago I had what I genuinely believe is a Holy Spirit moment while I was talking with somebody, I think about something completely separate Mm -hmm. and unrelated. And I realized that I'm not usually a reduce to the lowest common denominator kind of person, but I realized that if to blaspheme God is essentially to insult God, then the biggest insult Mm -hmm. I can give to the Holy Spirit is to say that she can't possibly do these things. And so that has ever since become my definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is to say, saying that the Holy Spirit can't make certain people fit for ministry, saying Mm. that the Holy Spirit can't sanctify some people, saying Mm. that the Holy Spirit can't find good and God-serving and God-loving things in people, that kind of thing. And that's been the heart and soul of how I've seen the Holy Spirit at work in the world for the last several years. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like there's some like, like different language, but like some kind of like common thread between what you and I both said. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you wrote Baptized in Tear Gas, as we've talked about, and we've talked about some of the stuff that you wrote about in the book. And we're here for Baptism of Jesus. And I'm curious, like, for you, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with baptism? Obviously, we made a connection because otherwise that wouldn't be our deep dive today. But like, I'm curious, particularly with your use of baptism Mm -hmm. and baptismal imagery and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, (laughs) I can't remember if I've talked about this before on the podcast, but when when I was writing the book and they tell you not to get attached to your title, right? Like, but Baptize in Tear Gas is my title from the beginning, but they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, the editors will change it or marketing will change it. Like, don't get attached to your title. And in marketing, they were like, Mm, I don't know about this sort of subtitle from white moderate to abolitionist, like abolitionist. I don't know if people are going to know what that means. Maybe it's too spicy. Maybe it's whatever. And it was really mm-hmm. important to me to have the word abolitionist. So and my editor yeah. worked that for me on that. So it's, you, you will notice that it stayed, but I, I bring that up to be like what people thought was like spicy from the publishing house was the word abolition. But what I found out later was I was speaking at a seminary class who had read the book and they were like, what do you have to say about all the controversy around the title of your book? And I was like, hmm, interesting, because I've literally never heard any of it. Will you enlighten me? <laughs> Which is such a, like, again, parody of itself, like a caricature of itself, of like the indirect whiteness, white niceness, like whatever, mm-hmm. that like people wouldn't just come to me directly and be like, I have a problem with this. So I don't, you know, whatever. It's like, I guess there had been this whole conversation not. and controversy going on and no one had come to me. So I was literally finding out right then. But I guess the controversy for people, so for some of our peers was the word baptized. <laughs> Using baptism in <laughs> yeah. that way. Scandalized people, some of our colleagues. And because they didn't come to me directly, I, I don't know exactly why, right? But what I would- not. Yes. But what I would say, if somebody did come to me directly, is that like, I take the sacraments incredibly seriously. And so I made that choice on purpose, right? Like I just mm-hmm. didn't put baptize on there for fun. It was because of my understanding of baptism 
that I use that language. So baptism is being brought into a family, into God's family, or being brought into a beloved community, being claimed. Baptism is transformation. Baptism is a lifelong journey, right? All of those things. And so those were similarities that I experienced in sort of liberation work, especially on the streets of Ferguson, but also from our understanding of baptism, a Lutheran understanding of baptism is like, yeah, there's the moment where you're sort of initiated and the water is sprinkled on your head, but actually baptism is a daily dying and rising. It's a lifelong journey and liberation and anti-racism and abolition is like that too, right? Like it's a daily dying and rising, a daily having to start again, right? And being empowered to start again and a journey that's not Mm -hmm. complete until our time on earth is complete. Also, you were incredibly clear about all of that in your book. You talked about baptism constantly in the book. I don't think yeah. they had read the book. Quite possibly not. I just thought, you know, I, I don't know because I didn't get to ask them, right? Like I, did, I didn't right. get mm-hmm. to ask them. Because the, the student who brought the question up to me was like, support sure. it, right? She was just like, yeah. yikes, this controversy. And I was like, what? <laughs> Yeah. So I think like to me, as far as like, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with baptism? It's about the Holy Spirit sort of claiming us as, as part of God's beloved, like numbering us among God's beloved. And we see that at the baptism of Jesus where, you know, God is like, this is my beloved child. It's about as we're claimed as beloved children. That means like, you know, other people are also claimed as God's beloved children, which means we're all in this together. So brought being Mm -hmm. brought into a community, a beloved community, a chosen family in which you look at the person next to you and it's like, God loves that person. God loves me. God loves that. Okay. All right. Right. So it's being brought into this beloved community, but it's also about being transformed and the Holy Spirit as a sanctifier, like we talked about, is an agent of transformation, both sort of internally and out in the world, because those things are linked, right? Grace Lee Boggs says, you know, change yourself to change the world sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this context, I'd probably be like the Holy Spirit changes systems and changes hearts, right? Like changes systems by changing hearts and changes hearts by changing systems. Like these things are sort of together. So I think, yeah, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with baptism? I think it's very much naming the way that God is like among us, but also inside us and a reminder of the fact that God is also inside our neighbor. And that that means that there are endless chances and opportunities for transformation and that we're all in this together. Salvation's a group project. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I really love that. It is. Those connecting pieces. And when you were like, and they thought that the controversy was going to be abolitionist. And I was like, (laughs) no, it's baptism, like 100%. But it it baffles me the amount of like orthodoxy that is okay when it's in ancient language, but when it's in the vernacular and common English, then it's a no-go because it's very clear especially as Lutherans, right? Like if our whole thing, yes. Martin Luther, who is a disaster, like I'm not trying to be like, whatever Martin Luther is good. But like Martin Luther's whole thing was like translating academia, translating ancient concepts and theology mm-hmm. into the vernacular of the people. That was like a major thing. So yeah, why is it? Yeah, I mean, Emily, you and I have talked about this like maybe offline before, maybe in a different podcast, I can't remember, but basically like, you know, and, and other people have said this to me, even some of our more conservative colleagues are like, my theology is like very Orthodox Lutheran, right? Like it's yep. very rooted mm-hmm. in the sacraments, very rooted in the confessions. And so, yeah, I, mm-hmm. you know, if people actually read it, they would probably know that. But it's interesting the way that, you know, like maybe to them, they're like talking about baptism that way is like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because baptism is a specific thing. But my hope is that 
in connecting baptism and what happens inside our churches, inside our liturgy, to connecting that to what happens outside the walls, that both of those things, you know, can can sort of be informed by one another, that the liturgy that we're doing reminds us to our responsibility for transformation out in the streets and in our hearts, and that when we're out in the mm-hmm. streets and we're seeing these things, that we can recognize the way that the Holy Spirit is already at work. So that's why I'm so passionate about translating that sort of like sacramental language into yeah. these moments that we find ourselves mm-hmm. in. Yeah, I am all about the sacraments and sacramental theology. And so that like, literally baptism is death. Yeah. And yeah. tear gas is death. Like mm-hmm. the baptized in tear gas is the thing. Yeah. 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 Well, and speaking of translating our language into modern context, now <laughs> for our most disruptive segment, let's make a Muppets musical. I love While it. you're not staying with us for the whole episode we are curious if you have thought about which muppet you might cast for any of the readings or for the holy spirit herself i was yes for the holy spirit herself i was thinking to cast animal and part of that is because you know sort of some people who have more pentecostal leanings like speak in tongues and animal kind of almost speaks in tongues a little bit like it's a little bit yeah a little bit incomprehensible but you know what you're like I don't know what you're saying, but I like know what you're saying, right? I kind of feel like mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit's like that too. Mm-hmm. It's like not always like totally yeah. clear, you know, words, definitely not necessarily like English, but it's, yeah, you're like, okay, I, I get what you're saying. But also I think a lot of times I picture the Holy Spirit as having like really wild hair. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of the wind connection, right? Like really windswept mm-hmm. and like, just like all over the place, you know, or like, you know, when you picture someone who's quote unquote really put together or something, you're, you're, their That's hair not is the like Holy Spirit. not just like, Whoo, all over the place. so <laughs> yeah. the Holy Spirit yeah. as like a disruptive force as a wind, all those things, like an animal has some good, just like wild, wild yeah. hair. So those I are mean, some of the things I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, if we were playing D&D, right, the Holy Spirit would be chaotic alignment. For yes. sure, 100%. Oh, yeah. And animal is definitely chaotic alignment. So, yeah. that's, also disruptive, that's, right? Like, yeah. animal has yeah. the drums. Like, animal comes in mm-hmm. with the drums, and you're like, this is not the time for drums, my friend, right? But it's just like, <laughs> here we go. We're disrupting. Yeah. 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 That is so good. Mm-hmm. I love that. Friend of the podcast, Pace Warfield May, cast God as Sweetums, Sweetums. at one point. Yeah. Oh. And I think that Sweetums and Animal would work really to get really well together. Yeah, I like it. So, Elle, any other thoughts on life, the universe, and everything? Yeah, I wanted to share with the, the listeners this thing that Pastor Lenny Duncan, who's also been on the podcast, front of the podcast, and I are mm-hmm. doing together. Pastor Lenny Duncan has a new book. They have a new book coming out, Dear Revolutionaries, A Field Guide for the World Beyond the Church. And I got to read it early on, and I just think it's so great. I think, obviously, a lot of Lenny's writing is amazing, but this is maybe, like, for me, like, really maybe the best. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard It's hard to decide that. But so with their new book coming out, we are putting on together sort of like a course. It, with mm-hmm. it, We're calling it the Waging Peace Cohort. And so every Monday for four weeks, starting January 16th through February 6th, 
Lenny and I will have this conversation and, and it's about the book, but there's also at the end of each chapter, there's some waging peace exercises at the end of each chapter. So we'll discuss the book, but we'll also sort of practically like be trying in our regular lives to like do some of these actions at the end of the, of the book. And mm. the idea is to build a cohort of people who can walk one in, aside one another and fight crystal fascism and create sort of like networks of community where we care for one another. So anyway, Basically, what I'm saying is you can sign up to be part of the first Waging Peace cohort. <laughs> yeah, There is a cost. The cost is $200. Lenny gets two thirds of that. I get one third, but also some of the money goes to cover books because you get these four classes. So you get sort of like entrance to the four classes, but also which are 90 minutes each. You also get recordings of all those discussions. You get mm. an early copy of the book digitally, but then you also get a signed hard copy of the book. So Cool. That's what the money goes towards, right? So, and if there are a few scholarship opportunities too, if 200 is a little bit steep, I understand there's been like definite times in my life where that like just wasn't possible. There are scholarship opportunities too. But just want to let you all know because I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast would be really awesome. If you're like the sort of person who's like, like, I'm ready, I, I, I feel like. In my heart, I'm like ready to work for liberation. I want to be a part of something, but I don't really know where to start. Like this is one possible way. And so Lenny and I would love to have you. Yeah, this is, I have been thinking about it and I'm really excited. I have not yet registered. When is the registration deadline for folks? You know, I should know that, but it's just before the first class. Like it's before the first class or when the spots all fill up. And and so, okay, you know. We're recording this ahead of time, so the spots have not all filled up yet, but yeah. And we'll link to the event registration for that as well for folks. We'll have a bunch of links to a bunch of the things that you have talked about. (laughs) Great. But yeah. Cool. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us all. Yes, thank you. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thanks for the invitation. Our first reading today is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah makes a prophecy about a servant of God who will serve with gentleness, healing, and justice. One of the themes in this passage is the idea of caregiving, like perhaps a parent or some other adult might do in a child's life. And like the idea of, right, like grab you by the hand and walk with you and that sort of a thing. And I was thinking about this and remembering in Encanto, when Mirabel, when Antonio is like hiding under the bed because he's scared and he's nervous because it's the day that he sure. gets his gift. And Mirabel. Who among us gets, has not hidden under the bed? Exactly. And Mirabel gets under the bed with him and then like talks to him and cajoles him and then gets him to come out and like gives him her hand yeah. and walks with him and cares for him and walks him to his door and stuff and it was just this like I love that image of God as Mirabelle to our Antonio yeah I didn't get a full-on nerdy reference for the taking by the hand image in this reading but I did have a momentary flash of like a kindergarten class all joined hands you know crossing a street together and I just loved that but I couldn't think of a nerdy reference to go with it so but I like the idea mm-hmm. of God, you know, leading yeah. us as a kindergarten class of, you know, all humanity across the street. Right. Yeah. 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 Nope. Then as we dive into the verses in verse three, we read a bruised reed, they will not break and a dimly burning wick, they will not quench. They will faithfully bring forth justice. 
And I was viscerally reminded of what I have read and learned and some of what I have done in like nonviolent direct action trainings where the like trainings in order to do them well, like the trainings that they did for the sit-ins during the civil rights movement and before protests where they knew that cops would have fire hoses or dogs like that people have to learn to sit at a counter and practice with people verbally and physically assaulting them in order to be able to do that when it's white supremacists doing that and it is very admirable and like so hard and there has to be so much discipline in order to really like not even break a bruised reed or quench a dimly burning wick. Like you have to be so set in your nonviolence. Yeah. Yeah. And that same verse actually reminded me of a moment in Robert Heinlein's short story, Gulf, when the main character, Joe, has been jailed for various reasons with another guy who he has just met. And he decides to trust this other guy almost entirely on the basis that a, I think it's a spider, lands on the other guy's arm. And this guy, instead of just immediately squashing the spider, gently takes it off his arm and puts it on a bench next to them and Mm -hmm. then continues the conversation that he and Joe are having. And on that basis, Joe decides to trust him. And because of that, Joe's life changes dramatically and he winds up, well, spoilers, dying in an explosion on the moon, but saving the rest of humanity by doing so. It's a, you know, science fiction story. I don't know what else you would expect. (laughs) All right. But yeah, that that one moment of deciding to trust someone based on how they treated an insect stuck with me. And I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And then in verse eight, we read, I am the everlasting. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to idols. And what I have translated as the everlasting also is translated as the becoming one or the Lord or the proper name of God. And what I think is fascinating about this is the connection with Doctor Who, that this is a name that actually we tend to not pronounce the actual tetragrammaton, the actual proper name of God, particularly in Judaism. But even in Christianity, like we don't, we translate it as Lord most of the time. And just like the doctor's name is like not known, but also the doctor's name is like somehow known by like multiple other characters. Yes. But not spoken aloud, right? And there's Including River Song. Yeah. And there's this really beautiful, like, way that it is sometimes used, but also that it is not used and that people refer to the doctor in particular ways, most of the time as the doctor, but also sometimes in other ways to not misuse the doctor's name or to not let the secret of the doctor's name get out. And then in verse 9, we read, See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And I don't generally go in the direction of trying to give God advice, because Mm -hmm. that doesn't seem like it's going to work out well long term. But as methods of proving your divinity go, which as far as I can tell is what God's actually trying to do here, you're showing previous prophecies that you've made that have also come true and that's not bad but also since people with future telling abilities are such a common idea that they've become a trope from nostradamus in supposedly real life to agnes nutter in the good omen series or book you might Mm -hmm. also just get mistaken for one of them so you know you (laughs) might also want to have some other things in your true walks god just saying yeah 
I don't even know. I don't know who Nostradamus is. A medieval guy that made like tons of prophecies that have supposedly come true, but also they were all kind of like poetical and Mm. metaphorical. And so you can kind of turn them into lots of things. Oh, that sounds about right. Also probably did not spell his name correctly. Meh. Yeah. Our second reading for this episode is Acts chapter 10 verses 34 through 43. Speaking to the household of Cornelius, a Roman soldier, Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ which breaks down barriers. So one of the themes in this passage is Peter giving, is like the Cliff Notes account, right? (laughs) Peter is giving the Cliff Notes version of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Cliff Notes version of the ice packs. The elevator speech evangelism. Exactly. And so I, I know we have Let's Make Them Up, It's Musical, but it made me think of like, a wishbone episode (laughs) and now i want wishbone i don't know it seems like wishbone has to be the protagonist so wishbone has to be jesus in this but no actually i think wishbone goes along with peter quite well like doesn't peter strike Mm -hmm. you as a jack russell terrier it's true isn't that what wishbone is that that seems very accurate yeah okay okay that makes me feel better that we're not like (laughs) killing wishbone in this particular episode uh, yes, and also, like, I'm pretty sure there are people who would have things to say about us casting Jesus as a dog, but, like, those people don't listen to this podcast anyway, so. I mean, yeah, <laughs> if you have issues with that, we're casting Jesus as Muppet sometimes, so, like, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but I like the idea of a wishbone episode of this yeah. passage. It would certainly make it more interesting to me because we have covered this particular passage, like, a million times. Yes, Because it comes up every easter i think which it is a good story and also too many of our congregation members haven't like paid any attention to it Mm -hmm. well and i think it comes up so much that sometimes pastors specifically don't right preach on it or it comes up in easter and so that's just tricky yeah anyway then as we dive into the verses in verse 34 we read then peter began to speak to the group i truly understand that god shows no partiality this sentence is like one of my biggest like pet peeve annoyances of peter's like no god does show partiality like it really feels like an i don't see color kind of move by peter Mm, like god's not partial and i think partly it's just the translation that like what peter is actually probably trying to say is that god is not going to specifically favor the wealthy right but god is partial and does pick sides and picks sides of the oppressed which is where like liberation theology comes from the preferential option for the oppressed for the poor so i'm just like peter yeah i kind of think this is a step on peter's journey and peter isn't Mm. done yet like peter is going from the god prefers the chosen people to god actually prefers everybody yeah loves everyone and also is on the side of the oppressed Okay, I could see I can see that progression. That is like a one stop in the progression. Yeah. Okay, that makes me feel better about it. Thank you. Sure. I'm less like Happy snarky against Peter now. Yeah. Well, and you know, let's be real. The person we're supposed to be snarky to in the New Testament isn't Peter anyway. So. <laughs> Fair. Wait, who are we supposed to be snarky to? Paul. Oh right. <laughs> okay, him too. That's in the epistles. Like. Well, yeah. Still the New Testament. I don't really know that. Are we snarky toward people in the Hebrew scriptures? I 
I don't remember being snarky toward people in the Hebrew. I mean, I, mean, I occasionally you know talk about how much Jeremiah likes to yell at people, but aside from that. Yeah. No, I'd be oh, really Jonah. snarky yes, for Jonah. Yeah. Anyway. And then in verse 35, Peter continues and says, But in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. And this is like the place where Peter starts to get kind of expansive, although it's a good thing that the like what is right is according to God and not Peter because frequently it's does what is right and it is a particular moral set of things. Yeah. As we talked about with Al, but in God's expansiveness, there's new understandings of what is right and that context does matter. And so there's like there used to be these ads that I saw for a while from, I think, like some banking company or something, but they were a series of like, this is good in this context and bad in this context or something. Sure. And so like one of the examples was always like, so-and-so is from the UK and so they finish their plate and eat every bite to show that they're like appreciative of the food. Sure. But when they're doing that in China, they're actually implying that the host has not given them enough or hearty enough food. And so it's this like that sort of a thing where it's like, okay, what is right? Well, in China, one thing is, and in the UK, a different thing is. Sure. Absolutely. Context. And I imagine that's also not just China either. Right. It, it seems like a fairly common concept. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in the second half of verse 39, we read, they put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, obviously, the serious theological reference for this verse is James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree, mm -hmm. which is an excellent book. But also, every time I, I read this phrase in the Bible, I also immediately come up with Douglas Adams' comment in the fourth Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book about how one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change. And, I, and it's just completely in passing. He's introducing a new character in the fourth book. And he says, one Tuesday afternoon in a small cafe in Islington or whatever it was, approximately 2000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change. <laughs> this woman was sitting there having a coffee or something. And it's just mm -hmm. how he introduces a thing, and it's perfectly yeah. normal, and I love that. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And in the first part of verse 41, also, we read, not to all the people, but, and speaking of not appearing to all of the people, Jesus did not appear to all of the people after the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Jesus did not, you know, literally make a world tour, I guess, would be one way that Jesus could have done that, which would have taken forever and the ascension never would have happened. Or how? I was trying to figure out, like, how would you appear to literally all of the people, even in the ancient world, when there were a heck of a lot less people than there are now? And mm -hmm you have no mass communications in the ancient world. So like, would you have to be a giant projection that is taller than a skyscraper so that everyone could see you? Ooh. Like happened once in the Girl Genius webcomic that Agatha did, which went awry for various plot related reasons. But you know, mm -hmm. you never know when you may have to make yourself a giant, even more than a billboard high in order for people to see you. Absolutely. I mean, also in Lamb, the Gospel, according to Biff Christ's childhood pal, Mary at some point, I think, has like some miracle where Jesus' face gets imprinted on all of the bread. I think yeah. it's Jesus' face, either that or her okay. face, because she's it's in his wandering years, in sure. his teen years where he's off and away. So that's like you could also do that, just imprint it on all sure. of the bread magically. Sure. Absolutely. 
And then our gospel reading for this episode is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus just before he begins public ministry, and the rest of the Trinity makes an appearance to approve with enthusiasm. Woohoo! Yay, enthusiasm. So one of the themes in this passage is perhaps the most obvious, baptism! Yay! Woohoo! Do you think we've talked about that enough this episode? No, of course I not. Mean... We did talk about the Holy Spirit more than we talked about baptism, so... True, that is fair. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I mean, the only places where you really get, like, super baptism-like connections are Christian stories and stuff, which I'm less interested in. But I was thinking about Moana. I'm on a Disney kick, apparently. I was thinking about Moana and the way that she does go through this, like, rebirth, this rebirth, this like cleansing and like sloughing off of the things that of the pressures that were put on her that are not serving her or her role as leader of her people and it happens through the sea through this journey that she takes and she definitely gets like thrown into the sea multiple times by Maui and so like it just had a lot of like really cool baptismal imagery connections and like the shell and the heart of Tafiti and stuff. The other pop culture reference I was thinking about for baptism was there is actually an episode where I think it's a a B-plot is about baptism in the TV show Lost, when Claire Mm. is trying to decide if her baby Aaron should be baptized. And she talks to several of the other characters, and there's weird theology about baptism makes a brief appearance, but in the end, it it winds up being a beautiful moment. So I don't really remember the details further than that. But I did not make it that far in Lost. I think my dad did. But I yeah, did I'm, I did not make it all the way through Lost, but I made it through a few seasons. And then in verse 14, we read, John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And this is one of those rare moments in the Bible that actually does help me understand why white Midwestern Americans tend to mistake biblical people for being very culturally like them. Because in so many ways, we are vastly different. But this is one of those moments that we share. Because literally yesterday morning, yesterday was Sunday, we're recording this on a Monday, it was Mm -hmm. about four degrees Fahrenheit outside. And two women who were entering the church stood just outside the front entrance of the church for a solid 10 seconds doing the no please you go first no please you go ahead no please you go first conversation and i was watching them from inside and thank goodness they hadn't actually opened the door yet but because otherwise i would have frozen but still i just (laughs) the time to do that is not when it's four degrees out folks yeah that that is hilarious yeah, and yet so Minnesotan. Yep, yeah. In the next verse, Jesus responds to John and says, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And then we read that John consented. And I yes. love this because it's so often when we talk about consent, like, A, consent matters. It's important, enthusiastic consent especially. Oh, yes. But when we talk about consent, there is this like very black and white sense of it and it it needs to be clear but it's not just yes or no like there can be a space to give a little bit more information I think especially as like people are learning about stuff and so I think about teaching it to youth and kids and like I was when I was visiting my cousin and her oldest was using a car seat but 
could talk and have conversations and stuff. And so I would, would help put her in and out of the car seat. And I would say, once I got her in the car seat, or when she was in the car seat, I would say, hey, can I, bu- can I buckle this now? Or can I pick you up to take you out of the car seat? And at one point she was like, why are you asking me? And I was like, because it's your body. And it's important that we do this, but also you get to decide some of like when and how it happens. And if you don't want me to do it, then your mom can do it. And that sort of a thing. But like there is a space to say, here is why this is important. And then to like, and and to know that like sometimes for kids, you're not going to get consent. Like they can't give you yeah. consent. Like if they refuse, you have to be able to then explain why you are doing something even if they don't consent. Yeah. And frequently it's because it is a matter of life or death, because you could get hurt, that sort of a thing. And if it's not that, then it's like, okay, do you actually need to be? I think it, it challenges adults to be yeah. a little bit clearer on why we want kids to do what we ask them to do or what we do to like to sure. them to take care of them. And then in the second half of verse 16, we read, Suddenly the heavens were opened to Jesus, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And some of us will always mentally see this image and those like it in the Bible. In the Monty Python paper cutout animation style, with the paper clouds moving apart and paper medieval trumpets coming up to provide the sound effects in order for the sun to start shining through and God to appear magically. And you know what? That's okay. That's fine. Whatever your art style in your head that you are seeing this with, that that works. You have mm-hmm. fun. That's fantastic. I love it in movies, especially when they have the like cutouts and they're mm-hmm. like remembering a thing or telling a story and they move to like a completely different and animated style. Yes. I yeah. love when that happens. That's not like exactly Monty Python, but still very similar. Yeah. yeah. And then in verse 17... We read that a voice from heaven said, this is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And I was thinking about it from a birth order perspective. And I was like, this is like everything that everyone of every birth order, like everywhere on the birth order needs to hear, right? The middle (laughs) child needs to hear, this is my child and a recognition of like belonging. The oldest needs to hear that you are well pleased with them as a parent or as a caregiver, and then the youngest needs to know that they are loved. Sure. And I was like, this works. Or that they're the beloved, that they have a unique identity, and it's not just like all the hand-me-downs of everybody else in the family. Yeah. yeah. That was my brilliance that I have declared. We already did our most disruptive segment once, but I was inspired, so we're going with the Holy Spirit, for another round of Let's Make a Muppets Musical. Sure. So... As we were going through the gospel and like, I love Elle's casting of the Holy Spirit as animal, but in this particular reading, when it's the spirit descended like a dove, I was like, or like a chicken and like Camilla (laughs) as the Holy Spirit, just like squawking and waving frantically on the way down. Yes. 
yes, I would love that. That would be awesome. And then, you know, landing solidly on Gonzo's head instead of on his shoulder. Absolutely. <laughs> and probably making a squawking noise when she does that. And yeah, I'm always struck by the fact that in that Axe passage, we see a lot of who Peter is, but as much mm -hmm. as we talk about how Cornelius as a character is important in the story, we don't really get a sense for who he is. But mm -hmm. I have always seen the name Cornelius as being connected with like very buttoned up, very rules following characters, mm -hmm. sort of. It's kind of just the sound of the name strikes me that way yeah. in part because I think I've seen so many characters like that. And so the Muppet that I would associate with Cornelius would probably be Scooter, who does have a sense of humor, hmm. but is also the stage manager for the Muppets Variety Show and is fairly organized yeah. and just has normal manners and is just generally a reasonable, easygoing guy. And I, I don't know that Cornelius was like that, but we don't really get any other sense of him. So I think that probably works. Yeah. I was, when you were describing that, I was thinking of Sam the Eagle. I thought you were going to say Sam the Eagle. Yeah. Or Sam the Eagle has a certain strictness to him that we also like, we don't get any of that from Cornelius mm. in the story. And I don't know That's that true. I... I necessarily see the name Cornelius as being strict. It's just more about being very, you know, towing the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually Sam the Eagle would be a better Peter almost in that sense of like, possibly that because before this with the actual thing that prompts this speech, Peter's like, right. no, no, God, I can't do that. No, God, I can't do that. It's against the rules. It's against the rules. <laughs> Us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the second Sunday after Epiphany. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It is probably cheaper than the calling of the Holy Spirit because that is like a pricey <laughs> thing, especially if it involves yeah. seminary. But usually she's calling you to something that costs more than five bucks or at least more than five time, bucks of your time. Effort, yeah, and a lot of discernment. How much yeah. does discernment cost? Yeah. Right? How many right. coffees do you have to have with other people before? <laughs> <laughs> now, Emily, we should be inclusive. You can also have tea. That's an option. True. So. True. <laughs> also, probably alcohol, because sometimes that bar is when things, you yeah. do the yeah for some people. Yeah, yeah. There's a variety. How many beverages? Yes. you need with people also let us know on facebook or twitter who you would cast for let's make a muppets musical for this episode as the ancient christian said pox, pox bobiscum, bobiscum.